Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. This is the blueprint going forward for any time, any officers, whether they be black or white, will be held accountable. Talk of change after the police killing of Tyree Nichols. It's Monday, January 30th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. A little later, we'll be hearing from the school in Newport News, Virginia, that's reopening three weeks after a six-year-old allegedly shot a teacher there. Teachers and parents react. But first, there were protests across the country this weekend following the release of video footage that showed Memphis police tasing, kicking, and beating Tyree Nichols during a traffic stop. He died from those injuries three days later. That was one of the lawyers representing Nichols' family, Ben Crump, whom we heard from a moment ago. As he points out, the official response to this police killing has been swifter than in many of the sadly similar instances of police violence we've seen in recent years. At least six cops involved in the arrest have been fired, and five were charged with crimes, including second-degree murder and aggravated kidnapping. The police department also disbanded a team they were part of, the so-called Scorpion Unit, which was launched in 2021. But the official response doesn't answer why this keeps happening, or how to make sure it doesn't happen again. It is bringing attention to specialized police units, like that Scorpion Unit, which many said had a reputation for using excessive force. Attorney Ben Crump told reporters about one account he said he heard from a man who was harassed by the Scorpion Unit when he went to get pizza. And he said that they used all kind of profanity against him. They uh, threw him on the ground, talking about where the drugs and where the weapons. Keith Taylor was an officer with the New York City Police Department. He now teaches at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and he spoke to Scott Tong. The police chief in Memphis created this Scorpion unit in 2021 to address rising homicides. And in recent months, people have been drag racing through neighborhoods and doing donuts on the highway. So the strike team was formed. Are these types of special units common? They are common. And they're usually created to deal with specific types of crimes that are reoccurring, usually serious in nature, and something that is beyond normal patrol activities. So these officers that make up these units, they are taken off patrol and they're handling these specific types of complaints around guns, around drugs, around Mm. whatever it is that a particular community is dealing with that is beyond normal police operations. And in your view, are there inherent risks to some of these special units? Yes. What can happen, depending on the amount of independence that is allowed these units, they can get involved in various types of malfeasance, ranging from abuse of authority, excessive use of force, to actual criminal violations uh, consisting of corruption. And we see this just looking at the history of scandals that have occurred nationwide in police departments dealing with these types of units. Mm. 
What was your reaction when you heard that Memphis would disband its Scorpion unit? I think that is a reasonable thing to do if it is apparent that the department does not have a handle on their operations. And quite clearly, this incident showed that the supervisory level was not adequate to ensure that these operations can be done safely and legally mm-hmm. by the uh, the officers. Now, there are a lot of other officers involved in the unit, and they may have all been doing their jobs, and apparently they were making a lot of arrests, and uh, they were very active. But this incident is indicative of a severe need to stop, assess what is going wrong with the unit, and then figure out how to achieve the goals of safety and security for the communities that they serve without having this type of abuse take place. The Memphis Police Department said its officers stopped Tyree Nichols on suspicion of reckless driving, but there's no video of that, and the police chief told NBC News the department has not yet found evidence of it. What questions does that raise for you about how this incident started? I think it is telling that the very basis for the stop, it may not have been legal. It would also really require an examination of the past activities, arrests that this unit has conducted to see if individuals' rights were violated while they were racking up all of those arrests. Hmm. Before Tyree Nichols was killed, officials had touted the Scorpion unit as helping to bring down crime. Here's the Memphis Police Chief Sarilyn C.J. Davis on CNN Friday as to why the unit was created. This is one of three teams whose uh, primary responsibility is to reduce gun violence, to um, be visible in communities, and, and to also impact the rise in the crime, basically out of, out of an outcry from the community. We had record numbers in 2021, 346 homicides. The chief talked about being tough on tough people, but there's also reporting that people in the community felt the unit was too harsh on people. Does this clue you into something that possibly might have been going wrong with this unit? It sounds like a lack of appropriate supervision might have uh, been a factor. Training needs to be looked at, any specialized training that the officers received or did not receive. Also looking at the backgrounds of the officers, having someone who's aggressive in terms of rest may not be best suited for operations that really require a very strong level of discipline on the part of the officers' activities. Keith Taylor, these, these special strike units is there a way for these units to ever be effective? Uh, I mean, are, are there ways they accomplish their mission the right way, I guess? Absolutely. The majority of police departments and police officers do their job and do it with great service and courage and integrity. But how they respond to officers who are bad officers is really important And so you cannot simply rely on officers to do the right thing. You have to have accountability measures in place. As a former president said, trust but verify. We need that in place for law enforcement to be held accountable for not just the good things that happen, but the bad. 
That's Keith Taylor of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Keith Taylor, thank you. Thank you so much. After the break, Robin Young discusses the police killing of Tyree Nichols with therapist and trauma specialist Resma Menekim. Stick around. So what do we do now? Especially, of course, communities of color. How do they grapple with being re-traumatized by a tape showing an obscene police attack on a black man to prove claims that have long been made about police attacks on black men? How do we all process this? Resma Menachem is a Minneapolis-based trauma therapist who's worked with combat-weary soldiers in Afghanistan. He's conducted anti-racist training with the Minneapolis Police Force and counseled traumatized community members before and after George Floyd's murder in Menachem's own city. He's also the author of the recent Upheaval and Racial Reckoning and the acclaimed My Grandmother's Hands, which is about the trauma that lives in black Americans the way his grandmother's wounds from picking cotton took root in her hands. And Rasmus says whites and police suffer their own secondary trauma from the racism they either inflict or witness. Resma, welcome back to Here and Now. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, Not a pleasure, but, I know. but yeah. you know. Well, I know you'd want this to be brief, but I have to ask, how are you doing? Um, I am not doing well. Um, this is... Uh, this stuff, this stuff rekindles, you know, historical stuff for me, rekindles intergenerational stuff, the persistent institutional stuff, and then my own personal pieces, uh, you know, personal lived experience. So um, it's a lot of weight right now yeah. on me and, and, and people in the black community. Well, let's, I know we can't lighten it, but let's explore it and start with this Scorpion Police Unit uh, created by Memphis Police Chief Sarahlyn Davis in 2021. And yes, as we heard, to fight crime but also to fight reckless driving, pop-up street racing. There was just an event in November of people doing donuts and other people taking pictures. It's a problem in a lot of cities, but um, local Memphis officials reportedly used this to ask for more legal leeway to seize cars. Um, The Scorpion teams seized 270 cars in 2021 and 253 weapons, more cars, than weapons. And now we know uh, Davis has disbanded the Scorpion team. They're looking at specialized teams. But in your mind, what goes wrong with these teams, especially if they're trying to keep up this tally of cars seized? And that means pulling people over. Yeah. So so I, I can't start this, the, the, the talking about the Scorpion unit without talking about the kind of like the organizing rubric that I always start out with. And that is that we live in a structure by which the white body deems and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured. And so um, philosophically and structurally, so what ends up happening is that these units end up always carrying out this kind of, you know, controlling of black bodies, white body supremacy ta- uh, uh, tactics like, you know, zero tolerance and stuff like that is something that has been, you know, since the inception of policing is something that has been used to, you know, uh, uh, push into black communities and, and black gatherings 
um, and this idea of, okay, we're going to stop crime. And if that means we, we kill somebody, if that means we murder somebody, that's just the cost of doing business. And I don't think we can talk about these types of units, which this is not an arid unit. This unit has been around, uh, uh, you have units like this in, right. in policing departments all across the nation. Well, but, okay, you know what I'm going to ask, which is, but these officers were black. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, right. So, so let, me, let, me, let me dispel this right quick. So the fact of the matter is, is that we all live in a white body supremacist society where the, where the white body is seen as standard, as a standard of humanness, and every other body is a deviant from that standard. And so black bodies, Asian bodies, um, um, indigenous bodies, all bodies in, and white bodies in just the notion that the white body in the white way is the correct way to do things. And so what ends up happening is, is that the culture of policing is a is 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 founded in the idea of 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 whiteness being standard. And so black bodies end up going along with the culture of policing. And that culture of policing is not to say that the black body is human, but it is that the culture of policing is that the black body is inhuman and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Black people ingest that too. That is not to say that black people are, that black police officers or black people get the same um, vertical uh, uh, um, uh, power that 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 white folks do, but they but in a structure like policing, they can actually uh, uh, do a lot of damage the same way that white police officers yeah, do. When you when you say they they digest this, they ingest this. Uh, you know, and we know that policing in the United States started with white um, rogue groups uh, charged with looking for runaway slaves. So it is in the DNA. And talk more about the DNA that's in all of us. This trauma that suffered by any community, in this case the black community, affects the DNA of sufferers passed on to future generations. You say you're feeling that. I think I just heard you say that as we began. You see this as a, a triggering incident in that way? Yeah. So so when I say that we all deal with the trauma, I'm not saying we all deal with it the same way. The white community has been invested in, um, in, in protecting itself from the black community and black people and bodies of culture. And so, they, so, so the white community ends up um, being impacted by this almost like episodes. One of the things I keep saying to people is that we need to stop looking at what happens in policing as episodes. This, this is not episodic. Yeah. This is structural. Yeah. It's not a TV series. I mean, I'm just thinking. It's not that, a yeah, TV series. The columnist Charles Blow, Charles Blow said that about even the release of the tape. It was like this yes. big event. Um, yes. But, it, but, yes. but it's presented that way. So I have just a few seconds with you. We're going to have to have you back as always. But can you be a professional for our listeners now? How are those, especially in the black community, in just the few seconds we have, one piece of advice to, to take this in? Turn towards each other. Um, love each other. Realize that you are not defective and what you think is happening to you and your people and the people around you is actually happening. Yeah, it's happening. Uh, trauma specialist and author Resma Menikin. Uh Again, uh, thank you so much. You've conducted anti-racist trainings with police forces. We'll have you back to talk more about that. Uh, but thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we check in on Newport News, Virginia 
where an elementary school has reopened three weeks after a first grader allegedly shot a teacher. That's after the break. Students are back in class today at Richneck Elementary in Newport News, Virginia, three weeks after a six-year-old allegedly shot teacher Abigail Zwerner with a gun he brought to school. Since then, a lawyer for the teacher said school administrators were warned at least three times that that student had a gun. Last week, the school board fired the district superintendent, and the school's principal has been reassigned within the district. The assistant principal has resigned. Now, a school shooting with a child as young as six is rare, but that's probably small comfort to parents in this school. Let's bring in one, Thomas Britton. His son is a classmate of the six-year-old accused of firing the gun. And Thomas, I know you put your little guy on a school bus today. We wondered, you know, you didn't feel like you had to drive? Were you trying to keep things normal? What was going through your head today? Me personally, uh, we had discussions, my wife and I. We think it's best, you know, we have enough anxiety. We don't need to put it on our child. And he typically rode the bus beforehand. And so to make things as normal as possible, put him on the bus as we were requested to do by the, the school. Yeah, again, to keep things normal. But how are you feeling? It's really tough to describe. I think my presiding emotion right now is anger at the entire situation, um, which was completely avoidable. I am nervously waiting by the phone in case there's an outburst or, you know, my, my child needs extra comfort or uh, mm-hmm. experiences anxiety throughout, throughout the day. So today is kind of waiting around the phone. How have you felt about this information that the administrators were warned that this student had a gun? I was absolutely shocked when I listened to the lawyer do the press conference. I am absolutely floored by just the ineptitude, the uh, callousness. Like, what what is the job of the administration to keep our children safe, right? They had so many opportunities. I can't believe it. Yeah. Well, we should say your son was having oral surgery that day. He was not in the classroom when this teacher was shot. He was Mm -hmm. spared that. But all his friends were there. And he's going back in that classroom. What's he been saying? He's actually, um, that classroom is not going to be in use. Okay. He's in a, the next door classroom. They had a back to school event, which was really nice. Uh, we went to specifically for his class and then for the school at large. Um, and it was heartwarming to see uh, my son notice a friend, a classmate who is returning and called out her name and, and you know, uh, my son's name is Declan and, and got a response, oh, hey, Declan, and then they gave a quick hug and it's amazing to see the resiliency of, of children, you know, yeah. <laughs> in this situation. How is your six-year-old processing not being there? His anxiety, he, he, he can't, I don't think he's internalized it. He's six. Yeah. So at first thought it was, oh, like pretend. And it's like, no, I wish, but no. Mm. And then he was worried that the guy with the gun would be at school, like they hired him or something. It's been a six-year-old's mind trying to make sense of this without Mm. having been there. It's been interesting as a parent. (laughs) Yeah. And who knew? Who knew this would be something you'd have to do? Well, so the school has taken safety precautions. Can you tell us what they are and if they're enough for you? So the one thing, they are getting clear backpacks, which, to be honest, for me is security theater. 
the clear backpack would not have stopped what happened. They got updated new metal detectors for the school, which are modern and really good quality. And I appreciate the metal detectors being there, but it's going to be interesting to see how the staffing, the maintenance, the <laughs> all the other stuff that comes along with that program keeps up. The biggest thing to me is that the administration is new. Mm. They've been replaced. Because even if all these things were in place beforehand, I don't think it would have stopped the situation because the administration appears to have refused to take any kind of warning seriously. Yeah. Well, as we said, there's investigations into that. Mm -hmm. uh, meantime, it's almost a cliche, innocence lost, but what's been lost for you and your son? For for us, this is a kid who pre-K was COVID, kindergarten was kind of aftermaths of COVID, and then his teacher is shot in school. Like, this kid can't catch a break. He has not had a normal school year, and I just hope and pray. And I told, I told my wife, I'm like, I hope this is the only one we have. Mm. Um, <laughs> but there's still a lot of time left in school. And so it makes me feel a little uneasy, right? That uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, want, I want his complaints to be about homework and not about worried about his teachers or friends being killed. Yeah. <laughs> well, from your lips, right? Uh, to God's ears, as they say. Well, we, of course, hope you get that wish. Uh, Thomas Britton, parent of a Richneck Elementary School student just returning today after a six-year-old is accused of shooting, although not fatally, a teacher. Thomas, thank you so much, and best to you and your son and family. Uh, to you as well. Thank you. The clear backpacks at Richneck Elementary are something retired teacher Natalie Poss has been advocating a decade ago, Poss was a school teacher in Bremerton, Washington, where she witnessed a shooting by an eight-year-old. And Natalie joins us. Welcome. Thank you. Briefly, what happened in your classroom that day? Um, it, was, it was a typical day. Actually, we had extra cookies from a party from before. I told everyone who was ready to go home, they would get a little treat. And of course, my student, Amina Kosher Bowman, was the first to comply she had her backpack on, and as I'm passing out cookies, I hear a loud noise. And it was a big sound that the kids thought was a balloon popping, and I noticed the kids jumped, mm. but Amina slumped down. So I went over to her, and I realized when I saw the blood coming out of the sleeve in her arm that she something terrible had happened to her. And I just gave a, an overall command to the students. I said, everyone needs to leave the room. Amina's been hurt, so everyone needs to leave the room and get help. And when I was able to get her to lay down and opened up her zipper on her jacket, I saw this massive amount of blood. Mm. And then at that point, I realized um, something horrific had happened. Um, lifting up her shirt, I saw that she had a hole in her side. Um, I, I was talking to her calmly. I, I put my hand over her hole to cover up her wound. Um, and it took it probably five minutes for the uh, mm -hmm. medics to arrive. They weren't sure they were going to be able to get her out of my room alive. Um, wow. She survived the gunshot wound. She still has the bullet in her spine. Um, I went down and saw her graduate high school. Uh, she is a miracle. It was a hollow point bullet, so when it went through the backpack, the plastic kept the bullet from fully expanding, but she did have a considerable hole in her mm. side. It went through the mm -hmm. elbow bone and stopped uh, in her abdomen. The boy was um, out of school for the rest of the year. He had 
um, counseling, and he, uh, a retired teacher from the junior high, uh, tutored him in reading and math. And after a year, he was allowed back in school. He went to a different school. And that this, this event has stayed with me my whole life. I've yeah. never quite gotten over with this event that happened. And I think the children in my classroom also um, never, never got over this. How did this shooting happen, as far as you know? Um, well, right now in Washington State, uh, children can bring all kinds of things to school in backpacks. Um, this boy brought a, a gun to school in his backpack, and I was not checking backpacks. In Washington State, we have code uh, prohibiting uh, teachers from looking into the personal belongings of students, which I think is a mistake. I think not only uh, should teachers have the authority to look in backpacks, I think it should be expected every day when students come in the classroom, um, teachers know what they're bringing into the room. I was not checking backpacks. Um, No one was. The shooter, this boy, was arrested, charged, Mm -hmm. and as I understand it, appeared in court in an orange jumpsuit. And he told the judge tearfully Mm -hmm. he could not understand the court documents he was being asked to read. The charges were dropped after he agreed to counseling, uh, and he wrote a heartbreaking apology. Mm -hmm. He wrote, I made a bad choice. I was sad, Mm -hmm. scared, and afraid, and I did not solve my problem well. Do you know what happened to him? I'm pretty sure he didn't finish school. Um, I heard through uh, a couple of other students that um, things were not going so well. He had a very, very challenging home environment. Both of his parents had been um, in and out of jail. Um, it's, uh, there, are, there are just so many cases of kids that I don't think are supervised properly and they get access to things. He did not mean to hurt anyone. But I, I think a lot of children, if they see a loaded weapon laying around, they will pick it up. I, it hasn't gotten any better since Columbine. And these kids coming to mm. school uh, need to have um, as much protection as possible. And, and one way to do that is to allow teachers to look in backpacks. Um, I do not think it is proper to expect a teacher to have a weapon. I think that's absolutely wrong. I am not opposed to looking into the possibility of possibly maybe having an office manager or someone um, who is not directly associated with the children every day, maybe carrying a concealed weapon in the event of an outside intruder trying to break into a school. My, my situation, of course, was not like that. I, I just, it's hard to get my head around it, but this is, the, this is the, mm-hmm. the world that we're living in in the United States. That's Natalie Poss, a retired teacher in Washington State. Natalie, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. There's always more to read and listen to at hereandnow.org. Whether you want more on the stories you heard here today or something completely different, we've got Ty Burr on the movies that made a splash at Sundance, including the drama Past Lives. I'm in a present industry screening surrounded by hardened industry professionals, and we're all just kind of snurfling and weeping into our morning coffee. It, it yes. really is. It's a quiet, subtle little movie about the way we live. Head to hereandnow.org for more. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Karen miller medson Hafsa Qureshi, and Lynn Menegon. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. 
Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.